Look at the last 10 years um, in social and political history, just in the United States. Nobody fucking knows what the social psychological results are going to be of various, of various things occurring, right? We just don't know at all. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. I don't know. Am I Austin Hayden or Austin Hayden Smith? But I'm one of them. I have co-referential terms. And I'm Troy Polidoro. <laughs> and we're back, motherfuckers. Uh, we had a little hiatus. Things got busy with us, and so we decided to take a little little break until we could get our shit together and uh, sit down and have a little chat. And you know what? That time is now. I'm I'm really excited, actually. How about you, Troy? Yeah, I've missed uh, our little chats, dude. They're not little to me. Yeah, they're, they're definitely really not big. little. <laughs> yeah, they're fucking they're big, and I miss them, and they're a huge part of my life. And uh, even if our our listenership like dwindles down to just me and you and uh, our loved ones, that's fine because uh, I just enjoy these conversations. So I cannot wait to chat with you, my friend. Um, can you give people a little teaser? What's this episode going to be about? Yeah. So today we're going to talk about um, recent recent news and discussions surrounding the. Um, uh, author, sociologist, I believe he is, uh, Andreas Malm, who's Swedish, and he teaches at Lund University. He's been in the news, um, not necessarily recently, but over the last few months. Um, he, he wrote a book, uh, I think a couple of years ago, called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, um, which is not exactly what the title implies. But um, he went on the yeah, New York it's not podcast. It's not an anarchist... It's not a, what was it the anarchist cookbook? Anarchist cookbook, it's yeah, called? it's not that. Yeah, it's not it's not that. <laughs> no, but it's got that that catchy title. Um, and he went he uh, kind of it kind of blew up when no pun intended when he went on the New Yorker podcast um, and advocated for uh, property destruction or what he calls intelligent sabotage uh, related to um, climate change. So we'll talk a bit about the controversy there, his appearance in the podcast. I know Ezra Klein in the New York Times wrote an article about it that was. That was cited a lot. So we'll just kind of talk about our thoughts uh, revolving around that. Yeah, that sounds good because this is one of those issues that honestly I've struggled with my entire life. I've had those, you know, in the in the previous uh, iteration of my life where I was a Christian pacifist, I would say. And then where I was a bit more of like a Christian anarchist that it was like, oh, you know, like direct action, but don't cause harm to people and then I kind of was more like oh well maybe it's okay to throw a brick through a window um, under the right circumstances and then I don't know so like there's like multiple stages of my evolution here so I'm excited to kind of flesh some of this out with you because uh yeah I think the issue of non-violence or like violence or property destruction or like what is kind of morally acceptable and then maybe even what's morally necessary with regards to activism on the street is a question that has surrounded the left for many, many years and is um, currently, I think, a particularly protracted issue. So I'm stoked to get into that. Yeah, ditto. And we should mention before we get into the meat of the podcast that if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access to all sorts of goodies that we have there. 
Yeah, we had a, we had a little bit of an outflow of our patron supporters, which I understand. We were quiet for a couple of months here, but um, we are back, so it would be really helpful to us if you could throw us some coin. And of course, we've got bonus content. We don't have a ton of stuff, but we are going to be producing consistent bonus content here on out. We're trying to get a producer in at the moment who can actually help us and support us to take some of the load off of Troy and myself. So that'll be really cool because they will be able to make sure that we can be more organized and have more time for cool content. So um, also, if you are supporting us on Patreon, that goes to this potential producer. I don't want to say too much about it because it isn't official yet, but so if you do that too, then that means we can pay for a producer. So if you if you stop your subscription, that's cool, but go back and, and throw that money back in there to pay for this person who I'm actually really excited about because I've worked with them in other capacities and hopefully we can get them involved. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Sweet, thank you. I love you. All right. <laughs> All right. So before we do anything else, you know what we got to do first, dude. Uh, what do we have to do? That's the Shitty Minute, bro. Oh, yeah. Shitty Minute, the best part of our podcast, probably. M- many people <laughs> are saying it's the best part of our podcast. Is where one of us yeah. rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week or possibly over the last several weeks. So, Austin, dude. what's got you down? I got many. Lately? I got many. As I as I get older, I'm getting crankier. I'm getting more opinionated because I get all kinds of things that I could rant about, and I didn't know even where to go with this because it's been a while. And and after a hiatus, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a buildup and expectation that this is going to be like a really fire shitty minute. So, you know, I felt a little bit of a pressure as well. But um, I decided to settle on something that was really recent. So there was a video. Um, I don't know if you used to listen to Sagar and Crystal when they were on the hill. Did you ever watch their show or listen to them? No, is that? No, I don't think so. No. Okay, so they it's, uh, it's Crystal Ball and um, Sagar. I don't know his last name, but they're on. Um, they started a new show that's called Breaking Points. Oh yeah, and... I know. I know Crystal Ball. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Crystal, she's like huge on Twitter in lefty yeah. circles, right? Yeah. So her and her co-host, and he's like, he like comes, I think he like used to work with like fucking Tucker Carlson or something like those. He's more like a, a populist conservative type, I guess, you know, like working class conservative, whatever he is. Um, and she obviously is, uh, is kind of like Bernie left, I guess you would say, um, to oversimplify both of who they are. But anyway, they did a video yesterday and did a segment on their show about the metaverse. And they were kind of like scoffing at how stupid it is that the um, super wealthy have found like a new space, like a new geography where they can invest their money and reap huge benefits with like asset price uh, valuation and inflation. And look, I'm not in any way defending um, an economy that exponentially rewards the already wealthy. That's not my point. What I'm going to critique is is her just kind of like scoffing, dismissive attitude that was basically like, um, but yeah, you in the working class out there, like you obviously aren't buying this bullshit. Like you, it, it's not alluring to you that you would potentially be able to access opulence in a digital space, right? Right? Like, that just doesn't appeal to you at all. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, actually, no, it does. Like, the working class is still um, influenced by affluence. We're still influenced by the appeal of, like, the next moment, the, the, the carrot that's being dangled in front of us that, um, that yeah, no, like, actually, um, maybe I could 
uh, have infinite leisure time or I could have uh, resources that would that would make me abundant or flourish. And the reason that's the case is because we live in a goddamn world where we are saturated by media images that entices us and that pulls us forward and that stimulates us. And the working class is not somehow immune to that desire, that system of desire production, the fucking... Uh, celebrity life, the fashion, the high fashion, beautiful fashion life, the the have a nice car life, the the have a dreamscape holiday vacation life. Like I don't know why, but I think somehow the left, sometimes especially like the the thought leaders on the left, somehow think that like the working class are just dispositionally immune from the um, temptations, if you will, of affluence. And I'm like, I don't think that's the case at all. And I don't know why it rubbed me the wrong way. But it just kind of made me, you know, part of the reason it rubbed me the wrong way is because I thought it was extremely naive. Um, Because that's, no, I think that if you talk to anybody who is poor or, uh, you know, working class, middle class, um, that they're still people are influenced by conspicuous consumption, for lack of a better term, right? And the desire, the potential desire for that. So I don't know. It just really bothered me because it just seemed extremely naive. And I'm not sure that it's, one, I just don't think it's right. And two, I don't think that it's helpful because I think that actually what we need to do is we kind of need to recognize that actually, you know, desire for nice things, desire for a leisurely life, desire for wealth and prosperity are things that actually impact all of us. And it's meeting people and recognizing that that desire uh, impacts us and then trying to figure out like how can we redirect flows of desire so that we don't live in a world where opulence and affluence are the things that are there rather than just being like, but obviously you're immune to that. And if only we could just have um, more and more of you who are immune to that come together, then we'd be able to overthrow the system. That's not how it fucking works. It just seems so naive and wrongheaded to me. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, mean, I don't know anything about this discussion um, uh, as it was had by um, that podcast, but I do wonder at the way you're describing it, you know, it does seem like there's a sort of 19th century assumption about the working class, like 19th century Western European assumption about the working class, where you could sort of tell if someone's working class just by looking at them, right? Or even by looking at their <laughs> yeah. consumption habits. And it's like, you can't yeah. do that anymore. It's so obvious that, I mean, in some cases, you, there's, there's certain tells or certain signs, right? But it's not, it's not obvious in the sense of like, you're only working class if you wear a hard hat. Or like you have like right. dust on your clothes Dirt. or something like that. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it's sort of like a one to one correspondence between uh, being working class, the level of you know economic class, uh, and then your yeah. social identity. And therefore, just falls out of that or something. Do you think a 19th century factory worker wouldn't want the opportunity to have a luxury holiday um, and that if there was like some business that was trying to manufacture desire for them, do you think that somehow that that they would be immune from that like um, that media and advertising um, complex? No, of course not. Of course not, because fucking humans are, we, we are bent towards mimetic desires. So if we see somebody else with really nice things, looking like they're living a lavish life, we're like, fuck, I, yeah, I could, I could be into that. So, which is a deeper issue and a deeper thing to consider, but it's not so simple as just being like, well, because you're working class, you, you don't want to be in the metaverse and here's just another, and I'm like, well, but you know what? A lot of them will. Here's, here's, here's what it was. I'll, I'll be a little more specific. So 
there's this company that just bought like $2 million of quote-unquote digital real estate, right? So digital land, and they're like, you know what we're going to do? It's going to be like a Rodeo Drive, but in the metaverse, in this like virtual digital space. And she was scoffing. She's like, right, because what the working class want, what the poor want is another Rodeo Drive. And I'm like, actually, if you give them the promise of an easier way to access opulence um, by like a digital medium, that will have more um, – more accessibility in the mind of the user than like uh, even the physical Rodeo Drive or, you know, Upper East Side or whatever the fuck it is in Manhattan, you know? Like, so actually I feel like this is even more seductive and it's going to have a greater appeal over a, a larger amount of people because the access will probably be easier. And that's actually what's more insidious about this. Not this thing, not this narrative that she was trying to say. And it just seems so outdated to me and... I don't know. There's a lot of people on the left, like the materialist left, that like buy into this. Like, like God bless her, love her. She was on the show back in the day. But like Amy Therese, this was her whole thing back in the day. Like I don't know. She's off doing her own thing now. I haven't talked to her in ages. But but like this was her thing. And I was like, I don't know, Amy. I think you're missing the boat on like the identity of the working class. Like teachers are working class, and nurses are working class, and fucking university professors as much as you don't want to admit it but that's part of the working class you know and anyone who produces value under the conditions of like this late capitalist consumerist regime are working class if you're a fucking graphic designer you're working class you know if you're starting your own etsy page you're that's working class so we got to fucking figure out how to kind of change the terms of working class get out of that old mindset you know yeah, I mean, there's lots of discussions there. I mean, at some point, when maybe something good is written about it, I'd like to talk to you about metaverse stuff. Um, I have some some qualms about it at the at the ethical level that I'm that I'm working through in my head, and I don't really want to dedicate much time to it because I just don't care a whole lot. But, <laughs> but, but but I have a take that I'm that I'm working Ooh. through. So at some point, I'd like to. It'll be some, a shitty minute. Maybe I, I want it to be a little more substantive than that. So something about okay. what makes what makes a space real, um, mm. in the sense that uh, sort of appropriate social relations can be undertaken in that space. That that's the sense of of real, and so I, I do wonder about that a bit. And I'm not sure that it's that it's as it's certainly not as easy as. Um, the digital space is literally the same as the non-digital space, nor is it as easy as it's literally fake, like incompletely illusory or something like that. It's somewhere in between, yeah. and I'm trying to work out how exactly it's so. But anyway, uh, yeah, a lot of thoughts about that. Save some of that for a later time, I think. But yeah, I, I definitely think that you're right that this assumption that it's also kind of a it's, it's, it's ubiquitous thing on the left, right? Um, like you said, the materialist left, where there's like a there's like a nobility given to the working class that they have this like kind of nascent wisdom about them um, yeah. that almost just needs to be unearthed, right? Uh, which maybe yeah. comes from like the obstetric metaphor we talked about before with G.A. Cohen. It does. It's that. a bad reading of Marx. Yeah, I, I think it, it really stems from from that idea. Um, not that, you know, working class people don't have wisdom, but that they simply in virtue of being working class rather than because they're human beings just like the rest of us that seems kind of insidious um and patronizing in a way but yeah that's yeah this is gotta gotta get rid of that stuff this is where people need to read Moish Postone and the value theorists because i think they are so important in making that correction that 
to critique capital from the standpoint of labor, from the standpoint of the working class, is a total misrepresentation of what Marx was actually doing. That actually what you get is a critique of the working class um, in its role as an expression of value. So anyway, it's, there's a lot of stuff out there. If, you, if you're interested in like resources on this, tweet us. Um, you, you can hit me up on Twitter. You can hit Troy up on Twitter. But check out Moish Pastone's work. He's kind of like the figurehead in this in this world of like value theory, um, Marxism. I actually have an article coming out that um, delves a little bit into Postone since Postone was a big engager of and critique of Lukash. And so we've got an article where the first section that I co-wrote with my friend Christian um, is on Sartre and Postone. So um, you can check that out. But yeah, um, I do want to say this. Twitter is a real space. Uh, the metaverse is some sort of weird, like, irreal space. And um, have you read the work of Mark Age called Non-Places no. on Super Modernity? So he developed a theory in the 90s, I think it was, 80s, 90s, about, like, the emergence of shopping malls and airports, and he called them non-places. And he makes a distinction between um, kind of like the social fabric that you would get of a place that was community embedded that had these social relations, like I think you might be interested in exploring. And then what he calls a non-place, which is basically like this transitory space that people are moving through. And of course, there's a distinction between space and place. But the book is called Non-Places. It's, it's a short nice read Ajay he's like an anthropologist of of modernity and then um, I think he calls it like the emergence of super modernity or something like that um, is where you get the proliferation of these non-places and he was writing before the digital revolution too so now I think there's guys that talk about like hyper modernity which I think even intensify this this notion of the non-place but um, very interesting stuff if you're interested it's A-U-G-E it's Mark with a C and then A-U-G-E and the book's called Non-Places. So that's another one for people to check out as well. Yeah, it's yeah, really interesting. That's... I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. I liked it. All right, should we jump to this main segment? Let's do it, brother. All right, so as we mentioned, we're going to be talking about some of the controversy surrounding Andreas Malm's recent uh, media appearances related to his book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. As we mentioned um, earlier, Andreas Mom is a, uh, I believe, a sociologist ecologist at Lund University in Sweden. Um, and the book that has been part of the controversy, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, like Alton was saying earlier, isn't a you know an, a correlate to like the Anarchist Cookbook. It's not a it's not an actual hmm. um, sort of strategic uh, pamphlet on how to blow up pipelines. It's, it's really more like why you ought to consider blowing up pipelines or something like that. Um, there's a lot here. I mean, I don't know exactly maybe what you wanted to talk about, but perhaps it seems to me like maybe I'll, I'll kind of um, frame this this way. It seems like it's two arguments that Andreas mom is making, and maybe we can set those two out and then in really broad strokes and then kind of tackle them as we see, as like we see fit. One okay. seems to be like a historical argument and the other seems to be a moral argument. So here's how I see it. And, and there's probably several sub-arguments for each of them. The historical argument is that he's attacking is uh, basically the assumption amongst most climate activists in the West that something like, I think he calls it strategic pacifism, is the method of activism um, that one must use. And no method outside of that is, is legitimate. Um, morally or, most specifically, is, is not going to be effective at delivering anything like the goals that climate actors want. So strategic pacifism basically means um, completely nonviolent protest is 
historically always going to be more effective than violent resistance of any kind, and that there's always a sort of reactionary response, um, at least in sort of Western democratic countries, towards any sort of threat of eco-terrorism, property destruction, anything like that. Um, and so historically, we can look back at the record and say that only strategic pacifism wins out from Gandhi to American civil rights movement to the women's suffrage movement and whatever else. Uh, and therefore, we that's the sort of um, a reason why we ought to think that uh, only nonviolent resistance will be effective when it comes to climate activism. So that's sort of the historical argument. The moral argument is that it's uh, whether or not it's effective, uh, violent resistance of any kind, whether to persons or to property, is sort of democratically illegitimate. It's a sort of, um, it's the kind of thing you don't do in a democracy. It undermines democracy in an important way because mm -hmm. it's, it involves threats as opposed to reasoned dialogue. Um, and that nonviolent resistance typified by like Gandhi or Martin Luther King is democratically illegitimate because it engages in sort of these these features of civil disobedience, which democratic theory seems to say are important, like publicly performing your civil disobedience, right? Like not hiding behind a mask, doing it in public with your face shown, taking on a reasonable amount of punishments in order to sort of, you know, make your case that I'm suffering unjustly here, um, but I'm willing to take the punishment on because there's something important about the structure of society or the rule of law or something that is that I'm sort of pointing at by taking on the punishment um, and all that stuff. So there's sort of a, like a democratic moral theory there, which says that um, only nonviolent resistance um, is really ever appropriate. So is that, do you think that makes sense as far as the historical and the moral arguments are concerned? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like, like there's also a tension and maybe this is just kind of like a, a conceptual tension um, between what we might say works and what we might say is right or what we ought to do. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes we don't know if what is right is also what we ought to do. And sometimes what is right isn't easy to do. And so I think there are a lot of these interesting tensions about like what is right versus like kind of like what works um, um, as well. So I think that he kind of like he focuses on that a little bit as well by by trying to argue that actually it's almost like morally right and morally necessary to abandon a dogmatic commitment to nonviolence or what he calls um, property destruction or what does he call intelligent sabotage. Um, that that's actually like a moral duty almost. Is is he almost seems to kind of I, I don't know if he uses that language duty moral duty, but he does seem to kind of like inch towards that. And I think that's kind of an interesting and important framing because it's that tension um, about okay, what ought we do, and then what works. And maybe we could even say sometimes you know this is what works, even if it isn't what is morally the best thing. You know, and that's one of those really tricky gray areas. And I think. I think that, that I would be maybe more inclined towards leaning in that direction, like that sometimes, yeah, I'm okay with, you know, property destruction and uh, intelligent sabotage or, um, you know, riots that, that lead to property destruction, even if I don't think that that's necessarily the right thing. But then again, how do you determine what's right? You know, is there an objective standard? Is there some sort of like transcendent signifier that is, uh, um, you know, signified that is like... Um, that is like determining 
uh, the, the realities that we are subsumed under, you know, these are all really difficult questions that I think we need to kind of work through. And to be honest, I don't have an easy answer. I really don't. One thing I will say, though, is I do wonder, is the history of nonviolence, like nonviolent resistance, is it typically wedded to like a transcendent moral theory? You know, like MLK, Gandhi, they've got their religious um, connections. So is there something that maybe in like a, a Nietzschean world, a world beyond good and evil, a world where where we are uh, living in the shadow of the death of God, that it's okay if we actually even get rid of thinking in these terms of like moral rights and wrongs? What do you think? Uh, definitely no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just think it's, it's, it's uh, important to make make the case here that if you think that um, some sort of action is legitimate and maybe even necessary, then that's saying that it's morally permissible. Which I mean, just like in my mind, take that take on the um, need to justify that. It's a lot of times, I think when people want to say something like, "I'm not saying this is about, about your, your your claim at all," but when people want to say like, "Let's just get rid of this talk about morality and just talk about what's politically necessary," it's like, well, then you're basically just like skirting in moral permissibility and a moral obligation through the back door without acknowledging it and not having to justify it. It's sort of like the claim that, well, I'm not going to do metaphysics. I'm just going to, you know, talk about politics. It's like, well, if you say that, what you're really doing is you're smuggling in metaphysics in the back door without having to justify it and pretending it's not there. The same thing happens in political theory uh, and social theory when it comes to ethics. And so we don't need to have a um, God coming down uh, to Mount Sinai and giving us on the tablets like things we may and may not do. Like that's that's a really kind of naive view of how morality actually works, right? Um, but we do need to think about um, what our obligations are to the people, right? And that's always going to be guiding what we do and don't do. And the value of things in the world are going to be guiding what we do and don't do. The very fact that everybody in this discussion agrees that violence, violence against persons is off the table is because persons are intrinsically valuable, right? In a way that property is not, and so it's a it's a moral, uh, it's a value based, but in that sense, a moral distinction about certain things that are off the table, and that's super important to think about. And I think if we can establish that that's the case, we can probably establish much more as well. Not to the sense mm. to the degree that I think I have any any certainty at all about how to adjudicate this specific problem, uh, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. We can't have an intelligent discussion about uh, how morality. Um, works in the domain of uh, civil disobedience and politics and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, where do you stand on on mom's whole arguments here? Well, maybe we can talk about the historical argument first, because that seems like a foundation for the moral argument, right? Because mom's basic, basic sort of through line of his argument is if the historical argument is false, right? If it's false, that only strategic pacifism ever works to accomplish um, political goals. Uh, if that's false, then that means that now there's room for a moral argument, right? Because if if any sort of violence means that a political, um, a political activism won't work, then there's no reason to even talk about whether it's morally permissible, right? That, that's not even on the table. So from what I gather, Mom's argument is that um, claims that, that Gandhi and MLK and uh, the 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 very in the movement suffrage movement the various um, sort of recent memory or recent history 
uh, forms of civil disobedience that they were only ever nonviolence is really uh, whitewashing basically the history. Mm. And that seems largely true to me um, for several reasons. One is obviously there was lots of property destruction in the civil rights movement, right? Not that it was necessarily all justified, but it existed, right? Certainly, American history is littered with forms of property destruction that are considered totally justified and legitimate by literally everybody in the country. <laughs> Specifically, you know, the uh, Revolutionary War, right, was involved in all sorts of justified property destruction um, for for much less uh, forms of tyranny than than um, than we're talking about in other cases, right? Certainly, mm-hmm. there's also the fact that um, the Martin Luther King and that that sort of nonviolent wing, or largely nonviolent wing of the civil rights movement, was accompanied by a much more uh, violent and aggressive uh, threat by people like the Black Panthers. And so, there's something yeah. to say about the fact that nonviolent movements often have to have a more militant wing on the side to make the nonviolent movement more legitimate in contrast, or at least the threat of the violent movement. Um, sort of drive negotiations towards the nonviolent ends, right? So that's certainly a case too. Um, yeah, it, it seems to me like it's obviously false that only strategic pacifism ever works, right? Mm. So that that you can't really, I think, make a make a really strong. I mean, do, do you agree with that? Do you have anything to add or any other like uh, objections? Someone on the strategic strategic pacifism angle might add just just in terms of the historical argument not the moral one yeah i mean there's there's huge debate of, of what was more effective was it the kind of like armed struggles of like black panthers and the threat of like violence in the streets was it the more like um like the activities of of, of malcolm x and um uh and things like that or was it the sort of like intentionally pacifistic act- activities of um of martin luther king jr and his cohorts right like what one actually uh, yielded more results like there's there's debate about this but you're absolutely right it is whitewashing to just simply say that oh like these struggles were effective because of nonviolence i mean i have literally heard my conservative um uh i guess like elders let's say that were like of the church that would make these comments all the time and i think it's because a, a few different reasons but like part of it is i think down to kind of like there's a a racialism um and maybe even a racism that accompanies this because then they can then they can dismiss and critique and judge um any sort of violent uprising as being outside the bounds of what was right and what actually not only was it right but that's what worked right remember when they're marching arm in arm down the streets and they're just being martyrs because we love a fucking martyr in the christian and post-christian world and i think even just in the west and maybe not just in the west but in humanity but i can only speak from more about my my understanding of the west we love a fucking martyrdom story you know like oh my god he just took it look at him he just sat there and you know they just took it and it's like yes there's there's something valuable about it, but I don't think that we should like fetishize it and romanticize it to the point of elevating that type of activity as though it's like pious, uh, like some sort of pious, mystical, transcendent human activism or something like that. Like I just don't think that that's that that's that that's 
historically accurate. I don't think it's right um, from like a conceptual perspective. Um, and I think it actually like leans into some kind of dangerous territory when you really start packing things back because there is very often an element of like cultural supremacy and racism that accompanies this. Um, so like historically, not only is it is, is that factual, but but um, or like it like not factual to kind of advocate for for that. But I just don't think that um, I don't think that it's like a useful discussion point to to try to like look back at the past and then like rigidly hold to something that may have worked in other contexts. So yeah, there are times when it does maybe work to walk arm in arm down the street and, you know, this is what democracy looks like or sing some sort of like, uh, seems sing a hymn or something like that. Yeah. Like that probably is very powerful under certain circumstances. And, um, and that's amazing, but, um, but it's not the only way and it's not necessarily even the best way all the time, you know, in all places. So I think we ought to have a bit more of like a nuanced approach to it. Yeah, and I mean, I think that when you when you make when you complicate the um, historical record in that way, what's really important is then it places the burden of of argument equally on advocates of intelligent sabotage, right? Violence against property, but not persons, as well as the person who advocates for strategic pacifism, right? Because mm. the, the historical argument is meant to shift the burden towards the the activist who wants to engage in, in sabotage, right? But complicating the record means the burden of arguments now on both. Like both sides need to advocate for why their method is more appropriate. Exactly. And that's important because as we've seen over the past 20 years from the Iraq war protests to um, the, pro the women's march after Donald Trump was elected to um, BLM and other cases, lots and lots of some of the, the biggest protests in the history of the world as well as the country, right, have occurred in the last 20 years. And especially when it comes to the Iraq war and to the Women's March back in 2017, um, basically nothing <laughs> happened, right? They basically had no effect whatsoever, even so far as for like after the Iraq war protests, which were the biggest protests, I think, in, in the history of the world at that point in terms of numbers of people involved. Bush just like stood outside the White House and was like, this is such a great show of of democracy, like he he welcomed it because he knew how little of a threat it actually was to change anything. So that because it wasn't made... it wasn't a show of democracy; it was a show of the entrenchment of the legitimacy of the status quo. That's what it was. Yeah, they knew that the protests didn't mean anything. It was not a threat in any way um, to whether or not the Iraq War was going to proceed. Right. So. Yeah. And it's important because that means both sides now have burden of argument, which I mean, I think is a, is a good way to um, segue into the moral argument, right? Because now I think both sides need to make a strong case. And this is where I get really um, conflicted because I see, I see good arguments on both sides. Um, and a lot of it comes down to just general uncertainty about social psychology um, and the fact that, you know, I'm certainly not a, like a consequentialist or utilitarian in any way, right? And I think that we should try to avoid any sort of reasoning like that. But there is a sense in which um, human social psychology is going to play a huge role in deciding what's legitimate and what's not. Because, you know, if it's true that, in, that engaging in some form of intelligent sabotage has reactionary effects generally, such that it would accomplish basically nothing, Right. And in fact, maybe even um, like exacerbate a reactionary response to the political level to engage in intelligent sabotage, then that's 
that's a mark against doing it, right? But then also, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in the, on the podcast um, that mom was on in the New Yorker, he mentions that this is a, obviously a kind of small scale version of the kind of sabotage that he's advocating for. But in Sweden, he and some other activists engaged in this like, um, what's like the most minor version of like a black block activism, like <laughs> gray block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> where they would go around to SUVs in suburban areas and just deflate the tires. Um, and that... The argument he said is that there's you can't necessarily determine uh, causation there. But after that was engaged, after that happened, and after it was sort of covered in news media, sales of SUVs went down in Sweden. And he says he thinks that you can make a reasonable, um, a reasonable sort of guess there was an effect there in terms of um, that being portrayed in the media and, and it's sort of probably both bringing to light um, the sort of how driving SUVs affects the environment through carbon emissions and also. Um, makes it just generally inconvenient to do that, right? So here's um, here's where I wonder if if intelligent sabotage is going to be different from spontaneous uprising. Let's say both of them have the result of property damage, but intelligent sabotage for me then needs to have with it like fucking forecasts and data analysis and projections um you know and and i'm sure that malm addresses this right because i know that ezra klein's critique was drawn on like economic lines and like the um, the costs that would be associated with damaging the machinery um that then would be a burden to the working class or to the poor which is then kind of counterintuitive and mom has his retort to that so so i think it's important to then be like okay so then like what is the longer term strategy and is this um is this the ends justifies the means types of logic or is this like a, a different type of strategic forecasting um under the banner of intelligent sabotage um, that we can that we can really get some like nuts and bolts nailed down on so that we're like here are the parameters and here are the strategies because if we do this then we've seen that historically it's um, you know SUV sales have gone down by X percentage therefore if we carry out similar things according to these forecasters and algorithmic models that we've run we know that if we do this then that'll lead to this which will produce this effects and that's good you know I think it needs to be like it needs to be like that. If it's going to be something that's categorized as intelligent sabotage, or it's just going to kind of have that element of chaos to it, and then I just don't know that people will be able to kind of get on board with it as much because it won't it won't be something that people can like kind of cohere around. And I think I think people would like that, unless of course you just get the people who are kind of more bent towards like fuck it, let's just fuck shit up, right? But I mean, like if it's going to be like a broad thing that the left can coalesce around and abandon any sort of dogmatic commitments to nonviolence, I think it would have to have that type of structure in place. Yeah, and I think that's actually the best argument against um, what mom is advocating for, because I think social psychology is just not it's not able to provide anything like that sort of structure that's predictive mm. in any way that could be used in this kind of reasoning. It just doesn't like we just don't have an understanding of social psychology such that we can do something like that with any sort of certainty. Like we can make guesses, right? But come on, look at the last, you know, like 10 years um, in social and political history, just in the United States. Nobody fucking knows what the social psychological results are going to be of various of various things occurring, right? We don't know at all. If anything, the only thing we probably do know, I think, when it comes to this is that 
if you were if you're really pessimistic about the um, effectiveness of something like intelligent sabotage, and you were really really um, convinced that it would have a reactionary response and that Republicans would um, galvanize around it and enact you know really draconian restrictions on any sort of political protest and uh, set back the climate movement for you know decades or whatever. If you thought that, it seems to me like um, after reading like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, right? Um, there's a lot of talk about about violence against persons as well as property and, and, and its role in the climate movement. But what's really crucial there, and I think what KSR makes a really good case for, is that this kind of thing will definitely be justifiable only in retrospect after a really terrible disaster where, that convinces basically everybody that climate change is really real. Not just a predictive thing, not just a boogeyman, but like, yeah, this is going to be the worst thing to happen to humanity, possibly in its existence um, as a species. Once people are convinced of that, then all sorts of shit comes on the table. But the problem Mm -hmm. is it comes on the table, not for good reasons necessarily, probably for good reasons, but also because now vengeance and retaliation becomes justifiable. And then Mm -hmm. that is a social psychological mechanism that's very effective and that spreads widely very quickly. Right, and then once and once you start, and then and then the intelligent part of intelligent sabotage goes out the window. Exactly, it's now partly (laughs) intelligent because you can go and you can stop people, the CEOs of you know um, fossil fuel companies, and you can like you know destroy their cars or whatever, blow up their planes when they're not on it, or maybe when they are on it. If you're into the violent stuff that happens in the book, right? but then that stuff becomes more justifiable because now everyone thinks that, really believes that this is what it is. Like it's a mass killing event that people knew about and added, and continued with even though they knew it was happening, right? Which is the reality. And that gets to the idea that it doesn't seem like people really believe climate change is what the science says that it is. Um, and so it does seem like we have a problem in, in basic social psychology, right? Which is it seems almost impossible to to sort of militate the resources, mental, social, political, and otherwise, that are necessary um, given the catastrophic consequences of climate change. And I don't know how you, it doesn't seem like we're really capable of doing that until it's too late, until everyone's fully convinced. But that means that, you know, 30 million people died in India yesterday and now everyone's serious. And even then, even in the Ministry of the Future, everyone's serious except for America. <laughs> American government's <laughs> on board. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a bit of despair that comes with that, right? Because it seems like I, I just – I don't know how you'd avoid the negative social psychological consequences of engaging in this um, sort of thing and have any optimism that it it's actually going to work rather than set things back. In, in fact, I'm not even going to be pessimistic here. I just don't think we can know either way. Um, and that it's, seems to it, it, be a good argument against doing it. You can't know, but obviously there are billions and billions of dollars that are invested by tech engineers that are modifying human behavior for 
their time and for their financial resources to purchase services and goods or just spend time on their platforms, right? So we do know that there are like ways to influence people. There are ways to create long-term strategies. Like fucking SoftBank has like a 300-year business plan, right? So there are long-term strategic possibilities, but it also requires resources. And this is another issue is the left the, the, the left that would coalesce around this type of idea of intelligent sabotage don't have the resources, right? They don't have um, they don't have the resources and I don't know that we have the data to be able to more accurately predict what this direct action, what this act of sabotage, uh, what effects it's going to yield, right? Like a lot of it will be a shot in the dark, right? Yeah, okay, so you blow up a pipeline or you dismantle some machinery, we don't really know what the multiplier effects are going to be, so to speak, you know? Um, is it going to have a positive reception in the media and along the public? Are more people going to get involved? Is it going to have a negative effect? Are investors just going to hunker down and be like, well, fine, well, we're just going to flood more money then, and then the government's going to support it, and it's going to be a tax write-off, and then it's going to be a burden on the economy, and that's going to have effects on inflation, right? Like, like it's very difficult to predict these things unless you have massive data sets and lots of um, resources behind it. And right now, absolutely, any sort of left that would that would support this does not have access to that stuff. So it's but going be to be a bit- there a podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that, that, that's my thing. This, this is also part of my worry is, it, is there a little bit of um, an ivory tower ignorance here? You know, like, like not to say that Malm isn't an activist on the streets, but is there a little bit of, and I can say this as somebody who has been in academia for fucking 15 years, is there a little bit of a naivete that like, like, I feel like, I feel like academics think that if everybody just had like baseline access to resources and stuff like that, they'd all become like readers of poetry and they'd all like go to the theater and they'd all like think uh, think about these things strategically all the time. Like, I don't know. I just feel like there's like, I've been thinking about this more and more, especially as I'm transitioning more and more away from academia proper, is that I'm just kind of starting to see a little bit of like a naivete about how academics view humanity and then maybe even not how they view it like objectively, but even like what they aspire humanity to be and i'm not sure that that's the humanity that is the only humanity that's like the only version of the human you know and so i wonder if there's a little bit of that like kind of like myopic um myopic lens in mom's in mom's reading here of uh, in his advocacy of this kind of like idea of intelligent sabotage as well you know like i'm just not sure i'm just not sure that i don't know there I'm not one from a social social psychology perspective too, but I also I just I'm just not sure that there's enough stuff here to to entice people to coalesce around this. Like beyond the fact of the resources that I was just talking about a minute ago, I'm also just not sure that like uh, that that this is like the right that that people actually respond to this kind of thing in the way that maybe he thinks they do as um, as somebody who's disposed and inclined the way that he is. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with you when it comes to stuff like this assumption that a lot of academics have that if everybody had like full reflective rationality, then they would all enjoy the same pleasures like going to the theater and eating vegan and, um, you know, whatever else, reading uh, proofs or something. Um, <laughs> that's certainly like obviously not true. And that's there's, there's sort of myopia that comes from 
institutional arrogance or something like that's there, right? But but maybe just to to like use take mom's place for a second, it does seem like there's something really basically irrational about our response to climate change. And that if we did have anything close to reflective transparency um, of ourselves and of reality, like it wouldn't be hard to convince people to change their behavior. Like it's a collective action problem still, right? But, you know, we can solve collective action problems like we've done that before. There's something really just more basic about it's 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 just impossible to believe there's a crisis if the if it doesn't look a certain way, kind of a thing, um, and that we can just become really comfortable with mass death, which is you know we've become much more aware of the fact yeah. that that's true over the last couple of years, um, mm. and so yeah, there's just something really fundamentally wrong with our psychology that rationality hasn't been able to sort of penetrate about this specific issue, um, and it, it doesn't matter how much we bang our, our you know, our heads are over on the wall against about it. It's not really seeming to to work, even for those who clearly uh, believe in it, right? I, I do think that there's, even for myself, like I think about this stuff and talk about it all the time and it, it doesn't really hit in the way that I think it would have if, you know, you thought that Hitler was invading tomorrow or something. Mm. Um, yeah, and that, that, that creates a, a huge problem here. Um, yeah, and, I, I, and reflective reflective rationality is just another way of saying class consciousness, right? Um, so maybe there is something that um, that is required for us to recognize. Maybe let's not say class consciousness, um, even though that's obviously part of it, but it's more about like a type of elevated consciousness that would allow us to to one see the problem, see ourselves in the problem, and then um, be able to have a sort of like a clearer, more translucid awareness of situation and ourselves in the problem. So, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe if we did have that type of elevated consciousness, um, then then people would be on board with 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 this um, this approach, this strategic approach. Yeah, and it seems. I mean, to transition here, it seems like I know to me, um, property destruction and intelligent sabotage on a large scale, at least. I just maybe that plays a role, you know, certainly no one's arguing it's the sufficient cause, whatever, but it's maybe, you know, a partial cause or condition for achieving that level of, of, um, of like cooperation and stuff. But I just don't know how, and maybe you never know how, maybe that's just part of the like tragedy, like the moral tragedy of, of being a human being in a society is every, you know, every person who's ever engaged in any sort of a civil disobedience or anything, you know, you know, close to that has had to understand that they don't really know if what they're doing is going to be effective and that there's loss that's involved in doing it. And there's, you know, wrongdoing possibly that they're engaging in without, without necessarily wanting to be. And there's, you know, I think there's definitely a sense in which there's a moral tragedy to that aspect and that at a social level, you never really know um, if it's going to work and we have to embrace that and act anyway. Right. Um, That's sort of an existentialist kind of Sartrean point actually. Right. There's a level of, of, uh, under determination that um, that morality provides us with, and that at a certain point we have to adjudicate between different options in a way that's a little bit more of a leap. Uh, it needs to be a justifiable leap, I think. Still, you know, you can't uh, just assume that like blowing up, I don't know, blowing up like the capital is going to all of a sudden like achieve your goals. Um, but you know, there's a certain sense in which you you do have to engage with risk. Um, like moral risk. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a real thing. 
So so do do you think it's morally permissible to sabotage machinery? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's the thing, right? Um, it seems like we wouldn't really know if it was worth it until we saw what the consequences were. But obviously, we can't do that, right? We can't do the sort of utilitarian calculation. Um, yeah. Afterwards, we have to try and understand what's justifiable now um, and act even if that means we, we risk. We're, we're making risks either way, right? Because if we don't do it, we also risk that it would have worked or would have helped work. Right? So there's risk either way in either doing it or not doing it, given that there's mm-hmm. going to be disastrous consequences seemingly either way. What I wanted to ask you yeah. is, so I mentioned yeah. earlier, there's this, there's this sort of understanding in democratic theory that civil disobedience under democratic conditions needs to have certain features, like being publicly performed, right, with like your face uncovered yeah. and your identity clear. You need to take on a certain degree of reasonable punishment as a way of pointing towards like the importance of rule of law and stuff like that. And that democratic theory makes anything like a communicative act that's a threat or could be cast as a threat, not just as violent, a threat that's a violence against a person, but also of their property, since that's like indirectly um, violence against the person. And even if you didn't think it was indirectly a a violence against a person, it's still a threat. It's not sort of reasoned dialogue in the public square or whatever, right? Um, what do you think about the idea that that threats for this reason can never be legitimate under democratic conditions? Because I have I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I'm curious what you think. Because that's sort of the, the standard the standard view in, in democratic theory about the, the importance of civil disobedience and why violence against persons or property is always illegitimate. I mean, I guess I'm just not really concerned with upholding the tradition of democratic theory that lays down those rules like to me i'm kind of like those are contingent constructions that maybe have served a purpose and that's great but anytime something gets to a consensus i'm always kind of like well yeah but like it doesn't need to be like that like okay cool like i don't know like consensus can be valuable as a sort of like abstract benchmark but i'm not really sure that we need to just perpetuate the um like the 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 master position of that consensus as as like some sort of like abstract rule for all places and all times moving forward you know so i'm kind of like okay you know i mean regardless of whether it's consensus or not even if it's minority opinion um do you think civil disobedience needs to be like publicly performed? You need to take on a reasonable punishment and point to the rule of law as a, as a form of like a communicative act that's calling for a rational response from your interlocutors. That's the idea, right? Symbolic action for the sake of bringing to light I mean, the fact that there's injustice happening. Well, like, okay, but even if your faces are covered, but you've got a brand, does that count? Like, if you're like, I mean, I'm just saying Extinction Rebellion just because, let's say everyone from Extinction Rebellion is wearing a mask all the time and there's no individual identities, um, but they've got their ER, like, slogan. Like, would that count? You know, like, does that count? Like, because, and then people are getting arrested, you know, when they're doing actions, you know, where they, like, glue their fucking hands together and shit like that, where they, like, lock people up, and then they might get arrested, you know, like... Is that is that part of this like democratic legitimacy paradigm? Yeah, that is discussed. I think about whether or not it needs to be an individual 
um, identities known or if group identities are sufficient for that. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't agree with this, this argument anyway. Um, but just speaking from the side of the, the democratic theorist, I would think there's at least some partial legitimacy you gain from having a group identity, I guess. But it seems like a kind of a weaselly way of not taking on the full responsibility that the democratic theorist is, is saying one needs to have, right? <laughs> yeah, and the, you, you only wear a mask so you don't get arrested, so your identity isn't known. The, the problem also, I'm trying to see how to articulate this. It seems to me that this, this democratic theory also presumes like a theory of external relations where you just have these like atomized individuals or brands or identities that all accept this larger container and play by those rules whereas i just kind of find that to be stifling and in kind of in a sneaky way um sort of like uh still trapped under maybe like a religious paradigm right like there's some sort of like objective standard of how things are and um oh you mean like like that, there's a like there's a kingdom of ends that everybody lives in yeah 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 exactly and <laughs> And I'm just not sure that that's the case. Like, I think actually, what if it was like sneaking around, skulking around in the middle of the night? Nobody knows who it is or where it is or why it is or where it's coming from or where it's going to strike next. And you don't need to have some sort of like social legitimacy by your brand getting accumulating social capital. Um, and you don't I, – I don't know. This is one of my worries though. One, I don't know how you get out of this, right? We live in such a brand-saturated, marketing-saturated – um, uh, social capital driven world that it almost seems like I'm just like talking about some sort of like fantasy world that doesn't even fucking exist in possibility um, because it's so common that it's like people find their value in their association with the collective so even if it was like the collective is what is forward facing extinction rebellion but the people are anonymized um the people are drawing some sort of satisfaction by being associated with the value that is produced by this brand that is accumulating assets or asset valuation right and so my question is 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 that actually really as radical as they think it is or is it still somehow contributing to this process of asset value production so i almost feel like if it's going to truly break the bounds then it's going to have to break free from the kind of democratic theorists suggestions that it needs to be like public facing and there needs to be non-anonymity and you know there needs to be an upholding of the rule of law if it's ever going to actually kind of like have any sort of like truly radical impact but then it just sounds like i'm spouting like crazy anarchist shit so i don't really know but that's kind of where my mind is at right now i'm just kind of thinking through that yeah i mean i, I think you're right that I certainly agree that the the sort of the brand factor is ubiquitous at the level of of like politics, right? Certainly, and that's a contingent feature of the way the world is right now. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, and certainly we have lots of social interactions that where that isn't a major factor in how we engage with people, right? If I go to the grocery store and the cashier is having a bad day, um, I can sort of excuse their behavior and be like, I understand your job sucks and you've probably been standing up for like six hours. And so I'm going to like reflectively decide not to be offended at your behavior. Right. And maybe even like give you a smile and 
try and make your day a little bit better by being kind or whatever. So we, we can certainly like decide to engage in behaviors with even people we don't know in ways that aren't sort of adjudicated by all that terrible, like parasitic social disease stuff that current like modern media develops. At the same time, like it just seems to me, you know, and I would take this approach to, I mentioned the kingdom of ends idea from Kant, right? Because I think this is an appropriate way to think about that notion of the categorical imperative act in such a way that you would in the kingdom of ends, right? Um, it seems to me like if if you were confident that engaging in the democratic form of civil disobedience would work, then that would be really good, right? And then that would be a really good reason to do it if you were confident that it would work, right? What would be a reasonable case for being confident that it would work? Well, if the people you're engaging with, your interlocutors in the civil disobedience, really had a sense of like justice, they really cared about um, having a, a like fully democratic, not just in the political, but in the economic and social sphere writ large sense, like big, you know, big inflated democracy, the way I would conceive of it, not just political representation and that's it, right? Um, if that was ubiquitous in a society, then I think you could engage with people like that. And I think we do that every day. Like if you think someone's reasonable, then you would engage with them with reasons, right? Reasonably. Um, but if you don't think someone is reasonable, and if you, you know, if you think that for good reasons, then you probably don't engage with them through the like medium of of giving and, and taking, asking for reasons, right? You don't engage with that way because mm -hmm. they're not going to be receptive to that. And so it seems like that's probably a really important condition when thinking about when this democratic theory applies. And so if you don't live in anything like a big, a big D democracy, like an inflated democracy in the sense that I'm talking about, then it would be kind of foolish to engage with, with your society as if you were living in that sort of state, right? Mm. And I think the fact that, I mean, we already talked about how there's whitewashing of the narratives involving um, Martin Luther King and Gandhi and um, and uh, the women's suffrage movement and stuff like that. And certainly those were those were cases where um, democracy was in peril and wasn't even existent in some cases, right? It seems like a lot of these discussions that around democratic theory happened after the civil rights movement, like in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, but before this current wave of sort of democracy falling apart, right? Um, and they, I think those, a lot of these discussions happened because there was a sort of, Pollyanna-ish belief that we were living in a big democracy and that things mm. were better and that this kind of um, nonviolence was effective because we were reaching this sort of ideal social state. Mm. And probably the last 10 years has shown us both that we aren't and that we probably never really were in really important ways. Um, and that doesn't mean that I think therefore like violence is legitimate or whatever. No, not at all for all the reasons we talked about before. But it does, I think, complicate the picture about the effectiveness of engaging in your civil disobedience in the form of reasons, like at, at the discursive level, where your, your, your acts and your protests are reasoned dialogue, right, that you're giving towards your interlocutors and they're supposed to respond back with more reasons, right? Um, that, if you don't have any democratic way of, like, securing basic survival, like basic humanitarian justice, not just like social justice, where you have, you know, full democratic 
equality and stuff like that, like humanitarian justice, like literally surviving and having food and shelter and not being completely isolated, right? Like really base level justice. If that's, if that's under threat, then it seems like the question about whether you need to engage in full democratic um, morality, like discursive morality, doesn't even seem to apply. And, and for me, the real conflict here, the reason, real reason why I'm so confused and don't really know where the bounds of legitimacy lie is that I don't know that we have a good sense of whether we're dealing with political justice or humanitarian justice, right? The level of justice where we're talking about equality in an ideal sense that we would want to have in our social space or humanitarian justice, which is like just trying to like make sure people don't die, right? And mm. climate change adjudicates both of those because it's climate change is the threat that delivers us from one state to the other at the level of triage, right? It throws the whole thing up in the air. Um, and that's and of course, the, 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 the intensity to which it's a humanitarian versus political issue is going to shift also regionally, right? And oh, yeah, for rich and poor nations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so obviously you have a sense there in which, I mean, the mo- probably the most important thing is, look, probably what's going to happen over the next 50 years is rich countries will largely focus their investments on adapting towards warmer climates. And lots of people will probably die. But like we've seen over the last couple of years, people will probably can normalize it and not think it's like the end of the world. And then in poor nations, it will ravage them, right? And then all the... The, you know, the effects of like climate migration and stuff will also happen and there'll be lots of, you know, political tragedy that, that occurs following that. And that's despairing to think about because that means that there's at a real level, that, that's pretty clearly at the level of humanitarian justice, right? Because that's just the rich nations consuming in a way that directly causes the deaths of, you know, countless people and poor nations who basically had no role and causing any of this and, and the rich nations did so knowingly right and that's hmm. yeah i mean i don't even know how you how you end up coming back from something like that and even talk about things like ideal social spaces and ideal <laughs> democracies and kingdom events and stuff like that right that all just seems um that all just seems like navel gazing when you're talking about this like base level of of, of catastrophe <laughs> right not to right. be depressing or anything, we, but... <laughs> no, no, it is a little depressing, but on that note, I would really recommend that people read Ministry for the Future because that that that, that that's what I'm thinking about because there is like a fucking almost extinction event, right? Um, mm. and, uh, and yeah, it definitely kind of places you in a narrative where you actually kind of get to live in this, in this quandary. Um, and uh, for those of you who are interested... Kim Stanley Robinson is going to be the keynote speaker at the Wheelwright Lecture at the University of Sydney. So um, get access to that audio if you can't uh, attend it, but I believe it's going to be a, a digital a digital event. So um, did if that you can not get already tickets, happen? Did it already happen? I wasn't fucking paying attention. I think it was um, like on Halloween or not Halloween, excuse me, um, at the uh, end of last month. Yeah, like Thanksgiving. Yeah, so if you can track down, I didn't listen to it. I, I didn't attend, but um, I've been meaning to. It's on my to do list. Try and track down the audio for that because I'm sure he has some interesting thoughts on this as well. Um, 
I'm mindful of the time here, brother. Let's let's wrap this up. What do you think? What are some final thoughts, takeaways? Uh, what do we? I know now. I feel like we're just starting to get to the difficult the difficult parts of this discussion. <laughs> but what do you think uh, we can take away at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm curious what you think. But my kind of endpoint, at least for now, um, is. If you're not conflicted, then I think something might be wrong with your analysis, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. If you if you just think it's obvious that only strategic pacifism is 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 both effective and right, then that that seems to be problematic for all the reasons we've talked about, right? But then if you're really confident that we got to just blow up some pipelines, then that also seems a little bit Pollyanna-ish in a different way, right? And that um, both from a sort of effectiveness standpoint and even from a moral standpoint. Um, I think there would have to be a, a certain degree of, of trepidation about about what we do in this instance for all these complicated reasons that we've talked about. For the fact that mm. it's it's very unclear um, what frame, what sort of moral frame we ought to use in a situation like this that's so big, it's so multifaceted, and the causal um, sort of causal mechanisms involved are so disparate that it's it's like the perfect. It's like the perfect moral problem in the sense of um, hmm. it's almost impossible to like resolve and, and, and make it clear what like your obligations and duties are, right? Um, yeah, so if, if you're not conflicted, then that seems to me like like a problem of analysis. Not that that means we should be you know inactive or whatever. We always have to act, even when we're unsure and uncertain, right? Yes, yeah. It just it, there seems to we have to recognize even when we act, however we act, that there's a, a degree of risk that we're taking, given you know the moral tragedy at the center of being a human being. That seems important to recognize in a very existentialist sense. Yeah, and I just want to say that I think about this in everything, but when you get to these points of like real tension where you're like, "Fuck, I feel like I'm at an impasse." Don't don't give up and walk away because as weird as it sounds, the more you retrace these points of tension and these like seeming contradictions and these like what what appear to be impossible limits, the more you think about them and think about the, all the different possible sides and ways out of that of that of that point of tension, uh, you're actually like really exercising a lot of really powerful intellectual muscles and. Um, I think it, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to come out on the other side, but I kind of liken it to like mental exercise, you know? It's like sometimes you plateau and um, just fucking keep hammering at it and it'll, it'll one, it'll strengthen your just kind of like rational faculties for other aspects of your life, but two, just keep cracking at that nut and eventually maybe you'll be able to get to the, get to the inner core, you know? So anyway, yeah, that's all I Yeah, and especially do so with people, right? Yeah. Like talking about it with people not only helps you have a better understanding of yourself and, and of what you're what you think is true, but also like it literally enacts the very important thing we're talking about, right? Which is yeah. change, like social change. Um, and that doesn't mean like you talking to your buds over a beer about climate change is going to like change the world, right? Um, but talking about it with people, and that's like that's that's part of the ideal giving and and asking for reasons thing that isn't the be all end all, right? But it's certainly it's going to play a role um, in determining what we ought to do, right? So literally yeah. just talking about it, even at a level of like complete uncertainty, um, I think is, is really good for individuals and for the social fabric as a whole. Yeah, I agree. 
All right, so we'll go ahead and put a little button on that convo. If you got any thoughts on this out there listening, please feel free to email us, um, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can tweet at us individually. Um, but yeah, give us your thoughts. If there's any other articles on this that, that we could check out as well, I mean, maybe this is something we can circle back around to. But we'll go ahead and wrap up that discussion for now. But now you know what it's time for. It's time for a happy segment. A segment where one of us gets to talk about something that's giving us meaning in a world that is staring down the barrel of climate breakdown. So after that dire ending to the main segment, now it's time to leave you on a positive note with the sticky leaves. So Troy, what's giving you meaning in this world of fucking catastrophe and confusion and uncertainty at this moment? Yeah, this may not, not may not actually be any more positive. We'll see. I'll try to make oh. it so. <laughs> so I just finished a book called Station Eleven by the novelist, Canadian novelist Emily St. John Mandel. Have you ever heard of it? Okay. No. Yeah, so it's called Station Eleven. Uh, I read it because it's been on my list of things to read for a while. I won a bunch of awards when it came out in 2015, I think. Um, but. Uh, HBO is making an adaptation of it. It's going to come out in a couple of weeks, actually. So I wanted to read okay. the book before the series came out um, because I'd never be able to read it again with fresh eyes. Um, and the the basic idea of the book is, and this was written in 2015, mind you, so it doesn't have anything to do with the last couple of years. But the idea is uh, there's a, a flu pandemic that um, <laughs> spreads over the northern United starts in the northern United States. It spread throughout uh, presumably the world. Uh, kills 99% of humanity. Um, and then the book basically deals with several different storylines in the aftermath of this. And what's so interesting about the book is you hear that that setup, right? That synopsis and you think, oh, this is going to be like a Walking Dead style story, right? Humanity's survival against other humans and everyone is reduced to, like, you know, uh, like pre-Hobbesian war of all against all, right? Um, and the book sets up that 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 narrative just to just to undermine that sort of interpretation of of like the like the the importance or meaning of human existence in the face of of like catastrophe or something like that instead the book is an, is a, is focused on a troupe of um musicians and theater performers who decide to spend the post-apocalypse wandering the northern united states performing shakespeare and basically mozart to various towns and villages that are spread across whatever's left of humanity. And the reason they do this is because they believe that, and they have this uh, quote that's said throughout the book, that survival is insufficient. And that meaning that mere survival is not enough for life. Um, We need more, we need theater, we need music. These things that actually, and like like social um, camaraderie and stuff like that. And so, there's like there's some plotty elements in the book, and it certainly has a uh, action and stuff like that. And it's certainly not um, it's not going to be like an, an ideal post apocalyptic state or anything like that, right? But the the basic like I mean, the most beautiful points of the book is just about how we derive meaning not from merely surviving, but from engaging in mm. projects with other people that we find to be intrinsically meaningful. And I adore the book. It's beautifully written. Emily St. John Mandel is a great writer. Um, but I especially loved in a time of thinking a lot about, you know, and even talking today about climate change and apocalypse and stuff like that, 
thinking about the things that actually provide meaning in life. Um, and that merely getting on to the next day is is not enough to to be sufficient for that. So I would I just quickly would say anybody who's yeah. likes that idea, that synopsis, um, check out the book Station Eleven. It's a fantastic book. It's beloved. Lots of people know about it. It's been in a lot of uh, won a lot of awards and been in a lot of reading lists. So it's certainly not a lesser known. And I'm sure in like a couple of weeks' time when the HBO series comes out, it'll be a big deal. I'm curious to see how they adapt it since I'm a little worried they're going to make it more action oriented and and Walking Deady than the book mm. is. But also the guy who's doing the series, Patrick Somerville, who is one of the writers on Leftovers, um, makes me think that, oh, yeah, Leftovers is a great example of talking about like the real human aspects of apocalypse and tragedy. So that seems like a good through line because there's a lot of themes that are in Leftovers, too. Even though Leftovers is much more, I think, um, like mystery based and kind of existential than this book is. Uh, there are some common themes there that are good. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic the series will will sort of flesh out and express those themes well. So I'm I'm excited for the series. The series sounds great. I don't know that I'll I'll delve into the book, um, but uh, but it sounds great. But I will say this: I was just going to make a joke because because what you were talking about with the distinction is a really nerdy joke, an inside an inside baseball joke for people who are like in philosophy circles and stuff like that. The distinction between just like bare survival and like a more like robust conception of life was making me think about a Gombin and all of his yeah. critiques. Uh, yeah, and Zoe. Yeah, and I was thinking about I was thinking about him and all the shit that he was getting. But actually, like, I kind of feel like don't out me too much, but I kind of feel like he was right on a lot of things that he was saying. Like maybe he was wrong on some things with his like dismissal of the the um danger of the virus but definitely i think i think his critique on society just being exclusively focused on survival um that i think that that is is a very reductive way of understanding things and i was just going to make a little joke about that because i was going to say oh so you've become an agambenian now huh but yeah Yeah, i mean in in very traditional continental philosophical fashion (laughs) Agamben engages in good theory and terrible empirics. <laughs> a long, long tradition from Kant to Hegel and everywhere, everybody since. Kant and Hegel were the exemplars of this, right? Great theory. Empirical application is shit. <laughs> um, I think Agamben the same way. Like there's a definite good argument to be made there about uh, reduction of life to mere survival is... Um, if anything, it's actually kind of like a, I think a capitalist utilitarian kind of thing. Um, yeah. But, but the application of that to like, I mean, I don't remember what a gamut said exactly, but like uh, getting vaccines is like control of your body. No. <laughs> uh, I don't remember if that was one of the arguments that he made, but that's well, like just a, about a really terrible it, application of that. It's just about the encroachment of the state of exception. And that, that was just like one instant of biopolitical management um, via the centralization of, uh, an increasing power of this state of exception. Um, and if you can kind of like scare people into thinking that survival is the kind of like prime value of society, then the state of exception will have even more potency to be able to dictate certain forms of biopolitical control and that the COVID vex or that the COVID pandemic is just showing us one iteration of that in a really, 
important one. So that was kind of the idea. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off track. Uh, we can talk about Agamben another time, but I, the series sounds great. Um, and I would love to check out the book. I just, my to read list is a kajillion pages long, so I just can't, but I definitely can set aside some time to watch a series with my girl. So maybe that's what I'll do. Yeah. That'll be the thing. It'll be a good thing to watch over Christmas and remind yourself that survival is insufficient. You also need presents. Yes, and I and I will say this only because we have to go and we have to wrap up. But I have to say this: Wheel of Time, the series, is really bad, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Speaking of series, it's really, really fucking bad. It looks like something the Sci-Fi Channel, like S Y F Y Sci-Fi Channel, would produce. I'm just ah, <laughs> oh, and I was so disappointed because I've just heard for years and years and years and years from. A, I have a friend in uh in. Well, he's in Scotland now. He's from Ireland. Shouts to Tom if you're listening. That he was obsessed with these novels and he talked about them all the time. And and so I was like, oh my god, this is, this is going to be like epic. And I was expecting it to be just like really interesting and like thematically interesting. And it just felt really derivative. And um and then of course the production value to me just seemed really kind of chintzy at times. So uh sorry, it just wasn't good. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would get started on that. All y'all <laughs> at Austin Hayden. <laughs> underscore Austin underscore Hayden. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, we got to get out of here. Um, you know, as Troy said at the outset, hit us up on Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There's bonus content there. So if you're not already a patron subscriber, you can get access to all the back catalog of that. We're going to uh, be producing stuff in the future going forward. As I said, we've got someone on board who's hopefully going to be a producer, which means that'll free up some time for Troy and I to be able to produce more of those bonus content things and do other stuff. Um, so that should be exciting. Um, so if you can support us, that would really go a long way to paying her. Um, and yeah, I think that's pretty much it, man. That's that's all I got to say. Um, I'll post some stuff down in the show notes, you know, like links to articles and things like that on Mom and then refutations of Mom and the podcast and various other things that have come up in this episode. But I think I think that's everything unless there's anything else that I forgot to say. Just one more thing as always, dude. What's that? Das the Dania Americans.